We're continuing where we left off. It is, again, it's 9-6-2020. We're going to continue with the thought of the week and prayer. Okay, we have the thought of the week. Um, it reads as, The greatest enemy to learning the deeper things of God is thinking you already know it all. Paul has insight into the mystery, and it is the wisdom we need. No matter how much you know, there's still more to know. A good example is in Ephesians chapter 1, Paul prays that these believers who are commended for their faith and love for the Lord Apostle is especially thankful for them. However, it does not stop there. Paul prays for them to get the spirit of wisdom and revelation so that they would know Christ even better than they knew him. He prays that they might know the hope to which they have been called. This is in Ephesians chapter 1, verses 15 through 18. With all the commendations given, it also is clear that Paul sees their need to grow more in order to see the hope of their destiny. It is also our destiny in order for us to see it. We must grow to the point where it is visible. Some will see what God has prepared for them because they don't think there is any some, um, excuse me, some will not see what God has prepared for them because they do not think there is anything else to be seen. Once salvation is realized, the objective for the new believer is to begin learning milk of the word so that they may grow up in their salvation. First Peter 2, verse 2. The mystery information is for those who are grown, not babes in Christ. In fact, you cannot fulfill God's will unless this information is its focus. I have become its servant by the commission God gave me to present to you the word of God in its fullness, Colossians 1.25. As you can see, God has called Paul for this very reason, to fill up what is lacking. With, mystery, with the mystery revealed, it must now be communicated. So ready or not, here it is. Uh, I have a little commentary on this. Uh, uh, the spirit of wisdom and revelation, as they would know it, even know Christ even better than they knew him. Uh, I think it's important that we uh, understand the need to know him better than we have known him. To continue uh, to grow in grace of our Lord and Savior would mean that we have to avail ourselves to the truth of God so that we can dispel the remnants of our old sin nature in our life. This is the workings of God, the Holy Spirit, which he 
undertakes as we avail ourselves to truth. Uh, You know, I think that uh, we have to be careful. Uh, Those that think we stand, lest we fall. The danger of falling is taking our eyes and taking our hearts from God and, and availing, taking ourselves away from the truth of God by not availing ourselves to truth. Um, so the scripture says, uh, study to show thyself approved unto God, the workman that needeth not be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. We cannot do this without availing ourselves to the truth. And uh, hence my commentary. I'll turn this over to Dwight for our prayer. Thank you very much, Brad. All right, I'm gonna pray for our families, of course, our immediate and our extended families. Um, I'll pray for the Word of Truth Church, Church Universal. Anybody have any special news that they would like to include? We just started. Let's bow our head. Dear Father in heaven, thank you for such a wonderful privilege to be able to share together the depth of your word, its meaning, and your very spirit who is alive in us. Let us avail ourselves to all the information, all the truth that he seeks to guide us into, so that we may know who we are and why we are. I pray for a word of truth first. Uh, the people on this call, as well as the, uh, you know, any members that have been part of this church at any time, we all have a special desire to, to know you better, Lord. Let us let us fulfill that desire. Let us seek after you diligently. And um, I pray also for the church universal that even around the world, we know that there are um, people who are on a similar journey of knowing you taking advantage of such a wonderful privilege that we have. And I pray for those who don't know you, who have not been saved yet, that they would turn their hearts to know you and change their minds to see that you have done the work and that it's not up to them to do the work for salvation. And I pray also for um, victims of of natural disasters and things going on in this world. It's just tremendously complex and with so many deep problems and uh, really they are devastating in and of themselves but if anybody would be moved by them to draw to you let that be the way it works we don't always know why these things happen but we know that you have a plan and we can rest 100 percent assured in that plan and our part in it I pray for our, our families, our immediate families, and, and all of the people that we have come in contact with and love, whether it's an acquaintance or immediate family, or even somebody adopted. In Christ, there is no male and female. There is no Jew or Greek. Let us all be one, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in a bond of peace. I pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. Thank you, Dwight. Thank you, Fred. Much appreciated, and uh, we are going to focus our attention now on um, John chapter 15. This is where we are. 
we finally made it. And uh, I'm just want to pause for a second and say that uh, we are making progress. I know it looks like we're going slow, but before you know it, we're, we're already done with the whole chapter 14. And I'm, uh, I'm really glad about the, the pace we're going. I hope hopefully it is good for you as well, that we're not going too fast, going too slow. We just hopefully are trying to do the best we can with uh, the text in front of us. So you should all have notes. And in your notes, uh, I am the true vine and my father is the gardener. As we begin a new chapter, Jesus continues his discourse. Vital information was shared with this special group of disciples. Jesus called each one of them, and they are all present except Judas, the betrayer. The words given by Jesus were certainly relevant to those disciples in their immediate future. However, we must also pay close attention to them since we are also in view as Jesus builds his church. Jesus had been introducing this new way that would be inaugurated shortly. There are still more details they need to know now. This departing information is certainly worthy of our attention. I would imagine the disciples were all leaning forward so as not to miss a single word of instruction, admonition, or comfort. They were about to go on a journey made possible by their Lord, who thoroughly demonstrated that he is the Christ, the Son of the living God. That comes from Matthew 16 and 16. So we, we have this new analogy before us. Christ is the vine, the true vine, and the Father is the gardener. Well, well let's dig into it and see what, what this text tells us about uh, the context and all that we have uh, looked at. So the first thought is, I am the true vine. So the disciples are presented with a vine metaphor. And this is not new. Right, to scripture, uh, this vine metaphor. And I could ask, what does this vineyard or vine represent? And uh, if we were to go to those Old Testament passages, we could conclude that the vine is Israel. Well, since I have the opportunity to look at a couple quickly, Isaiah chapter 4, which is, we'll, we'll just look at that real fast. 4, 2. It says, uh, let's see. In that day, the branch of the Lord will be beautiful and glorious, and the fruit of the land will be pride and glory of its survivors in Israel. So notice, in that day, he's talking about when Christ comes. He's talking really about that golden age, the millennium, right? But notice he uses the term the branch. Uh, so, which is the branch and the fruit of the, of the land, right? This is an analogy, but it is all related to Israel. <clears throat> and then we go to five. This is Isaiah chapter five. 
I will sing. This is, I think I want to look at verses 1 through 7. I will sing for the one <clears throat> I love a song about the vineyard. My loved one has a vineyard on a fertile hillside. He dug it up, cleared it of all the stones, and planted it with the choicest vines. He built a watchtower in it and cut out the wine press as well. <clears throat> he looked for a crop of good grapes, but it yielded only bad fruit. <clears throat> Excuse me. It says, Now you dwellers of Jerusalem and people of Judah, judge between me and my vineyard. What more could have been done for my vineyard and that I have done for it? When I looked for the good grapes, why did it yield only bad? Now I, tell, I will tell you what I'm going to do with my vineyard. I will take away its hedge and it will be destroyed. I will break down its wall and it will be trampled. I will make wasteland. I don't have to read the whole thing, but I'll skip to verse 7. The vineyard of the Lord Almighty is, is the nation of Israel. So it literally says the vineyard of the Lord Almighty in verse 7 is the nation Israel. And the peoples of Judah are vines he delighted in. And he looked for justice, but he saw bloodshed. For righteousness, but he cries for distress. I just want to give you the flavor. And there's other scriptures. I'm not going to turn to all of them. You can turn to them and look at them and see for yourself. And did I, I didn't even include all the scriptures that I found. I just put a few key ones in there. So the thought is, what does the vineyard represent? The vineyard. If a person were to look at this, I can imagine many would say Israel. So I say Israel, but there's a question mark. I'm going to go to the next thought here. As a student of the Old Testament, certainly Israel is the right answer. However, not in this case. I hope you understand why I say that the vine, Father is the gardener, I am the vine, Christ says. This analogy does not relate to Israel. So I hope you understand that. How do we know? On to the next point, point C. The context is important here. Christ is building the church a new way. And that's how we have to begin to see it. The church is not the same as Israel. And uh, Matthew 16, 16 through 18 says, I'm going to just turn to that, not that we haven't read it, and this is good for context because a lot of verses that we think we already know, guess what? We go back to those same verses and we're like, man, I never saw that part before. In any case, Matthew 16, 16 through 18, Simon Peter answered, you are the Messiah, the son of the living God. Jesus replied, blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, for this was not revealed to you by flesh and blood, but by my father in heaven. And I tell you that you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church. The gates of Hades will not overcome it. So this whole thought that Peter had the right answer, first of all, and it was a play on words here, on this rock. Peter, you are a little stone, that's what Peter means. But on this rock, which is a big stone, 
I will, what rock is that? Is it on Peter? The church is not built on Peter. And I know we have gone through that in detail here at Word is Truth. But other churches, other religions may believe that the church was built on Peter. It is not built on Peter. It is built on Peter's confession. What's Peter's confession? You are the Christ. You are the Messiah, son of the living God. That is the gospel. That is the fact of, you know, God promised to send the seed of the woman from way back in Genesis. And Jesus is that one that would come. And then he promised to, you know, and he, as time progressed, Israel came along and it was going to be through Israel that the Messiah would come, that the Savior of the world would come. And sure enough, he came in the person of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And, you know, that's interesting because the gospel never changes. It doesn't matter whether times about how, how God is dealing with Gentiles and he created the nation Israel. He was dealing with the nation Israel. He gave them his, the law and so forth. And now he's dealing with the church. No matter what age we're in, the gospel is still the same. It never changes. And that is the solid truth that the church is built upon. The fact that uh, the Christ is the, the Messiah, the Son of the living God. And so that's a new thing. It didn't say that the church was already built. If you look at um, Matthew 16, Jesus replies that he would build on this rock. He will build his church. And the gates of Hades will not prevail against it. So it is future. When did that happen? If I were to ask a question, it happened. The church began to be built at Pentecost. Although Jesus began to introduce some of the previews of coming attractions, he said it would not be built un until later. So point D in our notes, our outline here, God used similar metaphors for Israel and applied them to the church. So we should be aware of that. So God didn't just reinvent the wheel. He said, well, you know, I've already introduced the vine metaphor, the vineyard metaphor, and I applied it to Israel. But hey, I'm introducing something completely new. And I'm going to use the vine metaphor to illustrate some of the features and dynamics of the new entity that I'm going to create. How do we know it's the new entity? Because all you got to do is look at the context. The context of what Jesus presented to us in John chapter 14 is something completely new. Something that was hidden from past ages and generations. It was not things that were in the theology books of Israel. God is giving us something completely new called the church. So... Uh, he used similar metaphors, so we shouldn't be surprised by that. But I don't want us to be, you know, unfocused on uh, oh, thinking, are we talking about Israel? Are we talking about the church? Are we talking? No, he's talking directly about the church. So he also used similar words that he reuses for the church. For instance, foreknowledge, Israel is said to be foreknown, Israel is said to be elected, predestined. Right? These are some of the words he used for Israel as well. Guess what? He used those same words and he applies them to the church. 
And when he applies them to the church in Romans, for instance, 8, and I'll read it, not that we haven't already seen this, but we certainly, <clears throat> it bears looking at again, 8, 29, and 30. So it says, For those God foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son. Notice, predestined word. Israel is also predestined. Right? That he might be the firstborn among many brothers and sisters. And those he predestined, he also called. And those he called, he also justified. And those he justified, he also glorified. So we have some of the same words used of Israel, how they were called, a chosen people. Right? We're called, we're chosen. So I didn't go too much into that. But just so you know that God repurposes analogies, metaphors. He, he repurposes some of the unique language that he uses for Israel. And he repurposes it in the church. Why not? What a better way to teach. The new way is to help people understand. But you know what? That bears a responsibility for us. And that is that we make sure that when those words are used of the church, that we point that out. Because Israel is not just called, so we're called. We And how do we know? Verse Ephesians 1, 4, For he chose us in him before the creation of the world. In love, he predestined us to be adopted as son. All that is applied to us, and it's unique. It's not the same as Israel. And I think we have a responsibility to point that out to those who may use those words incorrectly. Same as every word that we use, whether it be righteousness, faith, justification, propitiation, right, redemption, whatever words we use, we really need for people to understand how those words are used in the context. And some of the words can be used across the board. Okay, so atonement or propitiation. It means the same everywhere. But certain words are used and applied to the church. So just hopefully you don't get bogged down thinking about that. But point E, keep in mind the church, which is Christ's, uh, which, which Christ was building, he says, is a profound mystery. Now this is Ephesians 5, 32. I want to turn there. Why not? 532. So wives and husbands, NIV gives me a caption. And he goes into this, wives, submit yourselves to the to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head. So notice everything, every time it uses here's a big metaphor here. This whole thing is a metaphor about wives and husbands. Well, how do we know that this whole thing is a metaphor? Oh, I hear some, some background noise. Stand by. Let me let me go in there and take a look at this. Yeah, I hear. Some, I got it covered. Thank you. So this whole thing is a metaphor in Ephesians chapter five. How do we know this whole wives and husbands thing? Couple things I'm going to clue you into. Verse 32 is the verse I have in your notes. This is a profound mystery, but I am talking about Christ and the church. It's interesting that Paul did not want us to be confused with any other thing 
even if he was, people could be confused with, oh, we're talking about husbands and wives. He's really not talking about husbands and wives. What are you talking about, Paul? I'm talking about Christ and the church. That's not to say we can't talk about husbands and wives, or that we can't even learn something about husbands and wives. I mean, it's almost like what he said in Romans 7. I am talking to you who know the law, that a woman is bound to her husband as long as he lives, right? Well, he's using another metaphor. Is he really talking about women and men under marriage in the Old Testament, under the law? No, he's not really talking about that. But he's going to use an analogy so that he can teach something about the church. And here we have it in verse 32 where he says, but I am talking about Christ and the church. Now, if you look at the verses now, that's just one clue right there. All right, I already know what the deal is here. I'm talking about the church. And then he's saying it's a mystery. And a mystery means it's hidden from the Old Testament. It's not in. The church wasn't in the Old Testament at all. So it's a mystery. Why a mystery? Because it wasn't revealed to them. But it's revealed to us. So if you look at the verses in Ephesians 5.22, wives, submit to your own husbands as you do to the Lord. Notice he puts the Lord in there. For the husband is the head of the wife, is Christ is the head, Christ the head of the church. That's what we're talking about. That's the analogy. Now as Christ submits to the, to, as a church submits to the Christ, so wives should submit to their husbands and everything, right? Again, notice his weaving what he's talking about through the metaphor. Same thing we get in uh, Romans 7. There are going to be features that are true about husbands and wives that relate, that he can use to relate to features in the church. So hopefully you understand that. Uh, this is a profound mystery. And uh, I could pause there and go into great detail about how uh, people are focused on the Old Testament for wisdom. When the wisdom that we have in this age is not found in the Old Testament, it is found uh, in the epistles in the New Testament. Let's move, let's move on. Point F. The mystery is revealed, but still used by Paul to identify this exclusive information. Now, Paul, uh, you know, he's the one who came up with the idea to call these, this information the mystery. Now, did God give that to him? Probably. But the mystery is sort of an analogy as a metaphor as well to help us understand something. That was, it was hidden from Israel, but more importantly, distinct from Israel. If it was hidden from Israel, then it's not Israel. But we can use Israel as an object lesson for us to learn some things about what God is doing. So... Ephesians 3, 3, 5 through 9. I'm already in Ephesians. I'm going to go to, to the verse I have here. He says that is, verse 3, 3, the mystery. And here are some features about the mystery. Made known to me by revelation, as I have already written br briefly. In reading this, then, you will be able to understand my insight into the mystery of Christ, which was not made known to people in other generations, as it has now been revealed by the Spirit of God, that's the Holy Spirit at Pentecost, God's holy apostles and prophets. So that's who he revealed it to initially, so that they could teach and reveal. 
God usually reveals things to his prophets. And, uh, and here as well, since the church is built on the foundation of apostles and prophets with Jesus Christ as the chief cornerstone. So when I look at Ephesians 3 and then verse 9 as well, uh, 3.9 says, And to make plain to everyone the administration of this mystery, which for ages past was kept hidden in God, who created all things. So it wasn't that the mystery was just hidden from Israel. It was hidden from everybody, whether Old Testament saints, whether it was Enoch, whoever you want to say, they knew nothing about the mystery until it was revealed. I don't even care if they went to heaven, like Enoch, or, or to paradise, Abraham's bosom, wherever they went, they knew nothing about the mystery. It was hid in God. Not even angels knew about it. That's why in Ephesians 3, 10, it says that uh, through the church, the manifold wisdom of God should be made known. They didn't know about it to the rulers and authorities. That's angelic beings in heavenly realms. They didn't know anything about the mystery. So Paul uses this term, mystery. We use it as well because it is a biblical word, but it explains some things for us that help us understand the uniqueness of the church age. Okay, so we can point, go to point G. Where is the wisdom found for us? And here, is it, you want to know where we get our wisdom from. It's not the Old Testament. The Old Testament, we could say, if God is saying that this is the deep things of God, then what did they have in the Old Testament? The milk of the word. That's how we'd have to see that. Because right now, this, these are deep things. Let's, let's read it. If, uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verses 6 through 10. We do, however, speak a message of wisdom among the mature. So, so Paul is saying earlier, oh, the wisdom of the world is foolishness. And, you know, we don't use, you know, these uh, tactics to try to persuade people, you know, through all this human wisdom. But no, but by the way, I'm not throwing wisdom out the door because he's saying we do, however, speak a message of wisdom among the mature. And, but not the wisdom of this age or the rulers of this age. Now, who is, who is this age? He's talking about the Jews who pre, pre, the previous age was the Jews or the rulers of this previous age who are coming to nothing. No, we declare God's wisdom a mystery. That has been hidden and that God destined for our glory before time began. None of the rulers of this age understood it. For if they had, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. So we kind of know who he's talking about. The rulers of this age that he's talking about is Israel. However, as it is written, what no eye has seen, what no ear has heard, what no human mind has conceived, the things that God has prepared for those who love him. These are the things God has revealed to us by his Spirit. When did all that happen? Pentecost. The Spirit searches all things, even the deep things of God. And it goes on. But the deep things of God are what we have in front of us. God is declaring is part of that which was hidden from the Old Testament. If, if the deep things of God were hidden from the Old Testament, then what did they have? They had the milk of the word. They had the gospel. They taught the gospel. But 
theirs was not to understand. It was not their call to deal with the deep things of God. It's ours. So that's where we, we assume that uh, understanding. So that's where our wisdom is found. And I say, look no further. If you want to know, if you want to talk about wisdom, if you want to talk about what's deep in the Word, then you better be looking at this stuff. You better not be looking at the Old Testament for this wisdom, for some profound thought. Now, can you look at the Old Testament and, and glean salvation? Absolutely. Can you glean some of the intricacies of how God is holy and righteous and just and propitious and on and on, redemptive? Yes, you can look in the Old Testament and find those things. But even those things are even stated more clearly in the New Testament, are more distinct and and set forward in a more straightforward way that we would understand. We don't have the culture of Israel. And these things are written uh, more importantly and more directly and succinctly to us. But when you think about the wisdom, the deep things of God that were destined, that were hidden from the Old Testament people, you will not find your way of life by looking at what Israel did. You can study it all day long. You will not find it. So don't look back for this information. You look forward. So let's. I just wanted to make sure we, we covered that. Let's move forward. I'm on point H. There's a lot of points here. So the true vine. Jesus says in our verse, I am the true vine. So one of the things, uh, you know, I just want to, this word aletheinos is the, the, the Greek word for it. And I'll just give the quick meaning. That which has not only uh, the name and resemblance, but the real nature corresponding to the name in every respect, corresponding to the idea signified by the name. Real. This is what that word means. Real, true, genuine. The opposite of what is fictitious, uh, counterfeit, or imaginary, simulated or pretended. This is... In op- the opposite of those things. It is genuine, right? It is real. It contrasts realities with their semblances, right? So shadows with act- the reality, right? Uh, opposite to what is imperfect, defective, frail, uncertain, true, voracious, sincere. And that all comes from uh, Thayer. So it's just a quick definition of what Christ said when he says, I am the true vine. And we ought to know, when we're following God, we need to be sure that it is God. There are so many voices in the world today. There are so many people telling you it's this way, it's that way, it's up, it's down, it's around the corner. You need to hear here, over here. right? And they're trying to get our attention. But Jesus says, I am. I'm the true vine. And what has he been talking about? He's been talking about in context how he's going to bring about something completely new. And it will be accompanied by signs, wonders, and miracles, which is God's signature that he is on board with what is going on here. And I would take it personally that uh, a lot of people are trying to show that they're authentic with 
the Bible and with God by manufacturing false signs, wonders, and miracles. I mean, Jesus went around and towns were, you know, they said, oh, Jesus is going to be in, in Plainfield, the Westfield, um, Scatterway, all these surrounding towns would, would bring all of their sick, and Jesus healed them all. Now people are talking about, oh, this person had a headache and now he was healed. This person's back was hurting and now it's no longer hurting anymore. We're not even talking about that stuff. People are manufacturing things to try to uh, you know, bring authenticity to their ministries. Well, God had real signs, genuine signs, wonders and miracles, and he brought attention to the ministry. And not just the ministry of Christ, the fact that he was the Christ, that he was the Messiah. The son of the living God. Not just that, but the direction of God going forward. That we would know what was coming next and that it was of God. This ministry, this church, this new way of thinking has dawned upon us. And many people today, even now, 2,000 years later, are questioning whether it is true, genuine, or not. We need to be able to stand up and, and, and say for sure, because, you know, we're not just saying these are just some things we believe in. These are things that identify who we are in Christ, this new creation. And not only that, but it speaks of our eternal destiny as well. What God has made of us. And we want to be certain, if we're going to hang our lives on such a thing, that it is absolutely true and trustworthy of our lives, our attention, our energy. We want to make sure we're going in the right direction. And God has signaled all along the way that we are. We are indeed going in the, in the right direction. In fact, I don't care what the world says. I don't care what even many Christians have said. This is the way. Walk ye in it. How do I know? He testified to it by signs, wonders, and various miracles given by the Holy Spirit. Hebrews 2 says that. God testified to it. How did he testify? Did he just tell people? No. Signs, wonders, miracles. You're supposed to know. So you can hang your hat on this. For real. He's the true vine. And this analogy isn't about Israel. It is about us. And so, true, genuine vine. Demonstrated by his miraculous works. Witnessed by the disciples and many others. He, you know, and when I say many others, I, I will just look at uh, John chapter 3, which you, we have seen as well. But I just want to point something out. John 3, 1 through 3. Now there was a Pharisee, a man named Nicodemus, who was a member of the Jewish ruling council. So, so I, at one point when I used to read this, and it just dawned on me, you know how it's good, you got to go back and read things because you miss stuff when you don't read with, try to, you know, really focus on what is actually there in the text. I didn't remember that Nicodemus was a Pharisee. 
Now, I know he, it says here he was a member of the Jewish ruling council. Now, the Jewish ruling council, that means he was a member of the Sanhedrin. So he was a Sadducee. He was, of the, of, he was a Pharisee, and he was a member of the Jewish ruling council, which is the Sanhedrin. This man is decorated with titles here. A Pharisee all by himself, that's a lot to say. Pharisees were set apart from all those others. I mean, they were focused on the law and obeying the law in every respect that they could. Not that they could. We know that they couldn't. But that was their life's work. If you say you were a Pharisee, we joke around and talk about Pharisees. Oh, that person's a Pharisee or this. But to, to be a Pharisee? It was not just some pursuit that you took up. It was a life work, a life pursuit to be a Pharisee. Nicodemus was a Pharisee. And this is what he said to Christ in verse 2. He came to Jesus at night and said, Rabbi, we know. He didn't say we're hoping. We know that you are a teacher who has come from God. Now get this. He knew that there was the direction there. That's what I'm talking about, direction. He says, For no one could perform the signs you are doing if God were not with him. So Nicodemus observed him. He was a Pharisee and steeped in the Mosaic law. And he said, We know that you're from God because no one can do this. God's stamp of authenticity is upon you. That's what he's saying. Christ is the true vine. No other imposter can come close to who Christ is and what he's done. We have to recognize. And when we put our faith in Christ, and then we put our trust in the direction and the words of Christ, that we are not just frivolously having faith in whatever. And this thing has been documented by signs, wonders, and miracles. God has testified to it that this is the way. Walk in it. So I would hope that you you would follow that point. Point J, following Jesus would not lead them astray. But believe me, he says, when I say that I am in the Father. Now, he's not even talking about salvation here, that he's the Messiah. He's talking about the way that he was leading them to tell them about this new spiritual life that will be a part of the church. How the Father was in him, and he was in the Father, and it was the Father walking in him and teaching them. Right, That's what he was trying to emphasize. He said, believe me when I say to you that I am in the Father, and the Father is in me. Or at least believe on the evidence of the works themselves. When he says at least, in other words, I know you don't have this in your frame of reference. I know it's not in your theology books. What you need to know is this is the moving of God. And you disciples have been here with me for these three and a half years and you have seen all the works that I have done. You know this is true. You've seen it with your own eyes, just like Nicodemus did. He says, we know you're a teacher from God. The disciples knew that already too. So that's what he's saying here. So point K, in the introduction of this metaphor... Christ could have said, I am the vine. But, he said, 
I am the true vine. He used that word because he wanted to distinguish himself from all others, even Israel. He wanted to make sure people knew this is the way. I am the true vine. So there would be confusion, especially going forward, because Christ was going to have to be go to Jerusalem. He said he was going to have to go to Jerusalem. He was going to have to be maligned and beaten and killed and then crucified. And on the third day, he would rise again. He said all this. He's been teaching this to the disciples. Of course, they didn't believe it. Well, they didn't want to believe it. I mean, there are definitely truths in the word that will conflict even with our wants and desires and norms and standards. So the disciples were getting ready to go through a tremendous confusion in the next three days. Death, burial, resurrection. Roller coaster of emotions and events. And they needed to remember the words of Christ and know that they were on the right path of God. There was no going back for them. They had to go forward. There was no going back and looking at what Israel did and, and all that. So in Philippians... So looking at this in a different context, go to Philippians chapter 3. This is exactly where Paul was saying. When we say there's no going back, there was no going back for the disciples. There was no going back for the apostle Paul either. He was illustrating that. Philippians 3, 12 through 14. Not that I have already obtained all this or have already arrived at my goal, but I press on to take hold for that which Christ Jesus took hold of me. Brothers and sisters, I do not consider myself to have yet taken hold of it. One thing I do, forgetting what is behind, straining toward what is ahead. So this is important for us. And when you think about what is behind, what was behind Paul? He says, he says verse 5, circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, in regard to the law of Pharisee, as for zeal, persecuting the church, as for righteousness, based on the law, faultless. But whatever were my gains, to me, I now consider loss for the sake of Christ. What is more, I consider everything loss of the surpassing worth knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. So when we get down to this verse 14 or 13, brothers and sisters, I do not consider myself to yet take note. But one thing I do, forgetting what is behind and straining toward what is ahead, I press on toward the goal to win the prize for which God called me heavenward in Christ Jesus. Now, get you, you need to understand that that's the context of what Paul's talking about, forgetting those things which were behind. For us, we were not Pharisees of the tribe of Benjamin and, and, and all that, but wherever you came from, whatever you were, listen, this, what God has called you to, eclipses all of that. You need to forget about what you were. And you can fill in the blanks of whatever you were. And you need to press on to win the prize for which God has called us heavenward. That is the goal for us now. That's the right path. That's the path that you have to come to grips with. 
That is your destiny. That's where you're going. You can't go back. You can't believe in Christ and say, okay, now I believe in Christ, I'm saved, but now I'm going to go back to whatever it is I was doing before. No, God has a new plan for my life. That's what Paul was trying to tell you in Philippians chapter 3 there. Let's move on. Okay, let's keep going. And the Father. So, so I am the true vine, and my Father is the gardener. So that word gardener, you can take your time and look it up. It's the word husbandman, or uh, I'm not going to go into the Greek word, but it means somebody who cares or takes care of the land. Often it was a landowner, but it was often often used for people who lease land and was able they were able to farm on it. But it was the meaning here is the father owns it and he's working it. It's interesting that the father is working here. He's working the, the vineyard here, and it's about the church. We're, we're going to talk about what that means and the implications therein. So let's look at the first thought. We must be sure to continue the context. Christ was focused on the time of Pentecost. So, so we know what vineyard, we understand, we're past that. We don't want to lose focus here when we start talking about things we, uh, that, relate, that, that have related to Israel in the past. So he's talking about Pentecost when the Holy Spirit, the Spirit of Truth, would come to introduce a new way. And that new way was all in the previous context. John 14, 17, but he, when the Spirit of Truth comes, he will, you know, he will not speak on his own. And, you know, all of those things that he talked about. And then in 20, on that day, John 14, 20, you will realize he's talking about Pentecost. Just about every theologian I, I've read recognizes that. There's no controversy here. And then in verse 26 as well. So I, I'm not going to tell you, go back and, and let you rehearse. I want you to go back and rehearse the context. But by rehearsing the context, and now Jesus is introducing this new metaphor for us, well, pay attention. Or as I would say here, Stay thirsty, my friend. And I hate to tell you, this is uh, this is about some beer commercial. Now, I will tell you, I um, have never had this beer. It's called Del Suckies. Del, Del Suckies. Don't don't get me wrong. <laughs> don't 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 get me pronouncing it wrong. But anyway, there was a commercial. This guy, he's supposedly supposedly this famous guy. He's you know the most interesting person in the world. And he drinks this beer. And uh, at the end of one of them, it, he says, Stay thirsty, my friend. <laughs> now, I, sh I shouldn't be using a beer commercial at church. I, I understand that. I, I know you already get that. However, the staying thirsty part, I thought was interesting. In fact, there, it was in, in another commercial where he says... And P is such an interesting, he's most, the most interesting person in the world. He said, people hang on his every word and even the prepositions. <laughs> so, you know, they're trying to make it interesting to, for their, to sell beer. But we should be hanging on Christ's every word. And we ought to stay thirsty. We ought to have an air of expectation 
about us when we read the words of Christ, and especially those in expectation of this new age. So that's where I, you know, think of. And then it also has drawn me to where the woman was at the well, the Samaritan woman, and Jesus says to her, uh, "You've been." She was drawing water from the well, and Jesus says, "I have water." That if you drink this water, you'll never thirst again. So she, he was talking about, obviously, this water. And she was like, well, give me this water. I won't be having to come back to this well and keep drawing it out. Well, once you get the water of salvation, you need to stay thirsty in terms of learning the plan of God. Your, your thirst, thirst may be quenched for salvation because that will certainly satisfy you will never perish. You will, there is no condemnation in Christ. You don't have to worry anymore about your soul's eternal destiny. It's, it's settled forever. But when it comes to the, the new way of life that is before you, like which, which is the way you walk? How are you Israel? Are you church? What is God, the Father's eternal purpose? Stay thirsty, my friend. Just like it says in the commercial. Because God has much more, more for you. We read some of it in the thought of the week as well. Point B, in, in this metaphor, we continue to be taught by the Father through our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, that was what was going on. If you didn't already realize it, that that's what was happening. Uh, we were being taught by the Father through the Lord Jesus Christ. I'm going to quickly go through these verses so, so we can illustrate that. John 12 45 okay so John 12:45 says he said it says the one who looks at me this is Jesus talking is seeing the one who sent me and that's very clear and we know that Jesus is the image of the invisible god right we we understand Jesus's role there but here he literally just says that the one who sees me or looks at me is looking or beholding the father the one who sent him is the Father, by the way. And then there's 49 and 50. For I did not speak on my own, but the Father who sent me commanded me to say all that I have spoken. Now, this is Jesus again talking. He says, I know that his command leads to life. So whatever I say is just what the Father has told me to say. And it can't be more clear that everything and Jesus is saying you've seen the father if you see me you see the father if you hate me you hate the father that was John 8 where he went back and forth with those Pharisees so and then John 14 24 as well uh, we, we read that in our context last uh, when we were studying John 24 says anyone who does not love me will not obey my teaching these words you hear are not my own they belong to the Father who sent me. So just the understanding of that is making sure we know about who is speaking to us, whose plan it is. So when it says, and my Father is the gardener, he's the one that is crafting all of these things. So point D, Jesus is revealing the role of the Father in this world. Now get that. We, we have, the Father has a role in this world. With the metaphor, 
that's what we're coming to understand. If the father is playing the role of the gardener, then obviously there's things that he's doing. And here's some important things we will learn about that father's role. Uh, the first one is the father is responsible for planting the vineyard. There's no doubt about that. It's the father. It's, it's his, he's the gardener. He's, he's the landowner. He's the one who's, who's uh, the one planting. Or how do I relate that? The father's plan. He's the one who is responsible for the plan. Jesus says, all that the Father has, has been given to him. Right? So it didn't just say he, he came up with this himself. He says, all, he's accrediting the Father with this knowledge and wisdom. Point two, the Father decides what fruit he wants. Or we know that's his eternal purpose. You know, he knows what he wants to get out of the vineyard. We could say it's grapes, like in the, we read in the Old Testament. So we're, he wanted good grapes, but he didn't get good grapes. He got bad grapes. But the Father decides and determines what is the fruit that he wants. Point three, the Father is the one who does the maintenance on the branches. This is verse two, where it says, he cuts off. I'm just going to go to John 15, two. We're, we're not at this verse, but we can see from it already. He cuts off every branch in me that bears no fruit, while every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes so that it will be even more fruitful. Now notice, it's not Jesus doing this. It's the Father doing this. And Jesus is divine. The Father is the one who's the gardener. He's the one that would be uh, having this responsibility. Right? He's, he's the maintenance for the branches, comes from the father and notice he never cuts the vine he always is focused on the branches and what comes as a result of the branch whether the branch is fruitful or not point four jesus is the vine and not the branch now uh, we are the branches now i say this only because this is point four only because if you read in uh, the Old Testament, one of the titles for Jesus is the branch. He's, he's, he's said to be the branch that comes. And I'm sorry, I didn't put all the Old Testament verses in here. But uh, in, in our verse, in this metaphor, which Jesus is free to change as he sees fit, we, we are the branches, not him. right? And, and then he is clearly said to be the vine. And number, the point number five, the fruit from the branch is the glory of the Father, notice. And if you look at uh, verse eight, verse eight here, it says, this is to my Father's glory that you bear much fruit, showing yourselves to be my disciples. So it's the Father that is glorified in the planning and planting and, and figuring and the maintenance of the garden. The Father is glorified by the fruit, not this, I know we're thinking, oh, well, shouldn't the vine get some glory? Shouldn't the branches get some glory for bearing the fruit? No, it's the Father. He's the, he's the planter. He's the planner. And then Romans 7, 4 and 5, let's look at that. It also complements what we're saying here. Romans 7, 4 and 5. So it says, so my brothers and sisters, you also died to the law through the body of Christ that you might belong to another, to him who was raised from the dead, in order that, notice from our metaphor, we might bear fruit 
for God. This is God the Father. It's the same language of our metaphor of bearing fruit. What about verse 5? For when we were in the realm of the flesh, the sinful passions aroused by the law were at work in us, so that we bore fruit for death. Bearing fruit for God, bearing fruit for death. Wow. I think I think the, the differences there are clear, right? So, point E, we're moving forward. What kind of fruit does the Father want? Now, here it is. I'm going to turn to John chapter 1. What, what, is, what are we looking for in John chapter 1? Uh, 14, right? 1, 14 says, The Word of, uh, became flesh, made his dwelling among us. We have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only Son, who came from the Father. Okay, so this is what the Father is doing. He's planting a vineyard. What is he doing? He's brought the Son full of grace and truth. Full of grace and truth. That's what Christ comes with, and the Father has planted him. Right? And then, what is this grace and truth? What do you mean, grace and truth? Full of grace and truth. What does that mean? 16 and 17, John 1, 16 and 17, explains what he means by grace and truth. Here it is. Out of his fullness, verse 16, we have all received in the in place of grace, we, we have all received grace in place of grace already given. Grace for grace. We have exchanged grace for grace. Well, what grace did we have in the Old Testament? They had the Mosaic Law. And what is the grace we have in the New Testament? Well, we have uh, what came through Jesus Christ. So in verse 17, it sums it up for us. For the law was given through Moses, right? That was one plan of God given through Moses. They were under the law, right? But grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. So now, what is grace and truth then? Grace and truth relate to his eternal purpose through the Son. And that's exactly what we find in Ephesians 3, 2, right? 2 and 3. Let me just go there. Ephesians 2, 2 and 3, which we already read again. <laughs> We've been over this. So it says, Surely you have heard about the administration of God's grace, which was given to me for you. That is the mystery, made known to me by revelation, as I've already written briefly. So, and then verse 9, we read already before, where it talks about, uh, and to make plain to everyone the administration of this mystery, which for ages past was kept hidden in God who created all things. So that's what grace and truth is when it comes to what does God mean? He is introducing, well, the Father's plan was to introduce through Christ a new and living way made possible through the work of Christ on our behalf. Closing scripture that we need to see in John chapter 1. John chapter 1, 18. Now, we already read 16, 17. 18 follows with, No one has ever seen God, but the one and only Son, who is himself God, and is in closest relationship with the Father. He has made him known. So, when the Father planted Christ... He was the image of the invisible God. When it says no one has ever seen God, so the plan, that, again, that's the mystery. 
what was being revealed in this age about the Father and who he is and what he came to do and his purposes not revealed in the Old Testament. When Jesus is saying it this one, no one this way, no one has ever seen God but the one and only Son who was in who was himself God. And that go back to John one one. In the beginning was the word and word was God and the word was with God. Right? Uh, it goes back to that same thing. And but in this case, Christ is revealing the Father. That's what we're dealing with. And it's in closest relation. He has made him known. That's what Christ has come. What does he mean in grace and truth? So we're going to have to quit. We'll talk more about this. I know I'm rushing because I don't want to keep you long. But uh, we're going to continue with this thought next week. And in this stimulating, exciting context, in my opinion. Let's bow our heads. Thank you, Father, for the grace and truth that has been given to us in this age. We thank you for the wisdom that has been destined for our glory before time began. We thank you for those who are here, who have come to understand the calling where you chose them before the creation of the world. And as we think about these things and our hearts are overflowing with gratitude and gratefulness, appreciation for what you've done for us, all we can do is to learn of you and to come to the full knowledge of the truth. We pray that for each person under the sound of my voice, that they will come to know the calling that you have given them. It's all in Christ's name we pray. Amen. Amen. Amen.